Welcome to the SportsPro podcast with SportsPro editor Owen Connolly, getting inside the sports industry, then recording it on audio. Hi everyone, and welcome to a special edition of the SportsPro podcast. Today we're going to be discussing SportsPro's annual list, its seventh annual list of the world's most marketable athletes. Uh, joining us are Adam Nelson, senior writer at SportsPro. Hi, Adam. Hello, Owen. David Kushnan, formerly of SportsPro and now the global communications manager for Repucom. Hi, David. Hi, Owen. And with us for the first time, the founder and chief executive of the pitch agency, Henry Chappell. Hi, Henry. Hi. Right, guys, so we're going to be talking about the most marketable athletes list. Everybody's been talking about it this week. Everybody. Um, or perhaps not, but anyway. Let's just address, first of all, the elephant in the room, what we used to call the Beckham question. It then became the Federer question. I guess it will become the Lionel Messi question maybe next year, but this isn't a list of the athletes who get the most media coverage in world sport or who get the biggest endorsement dollars or anything like that. What is it? David Kushner, what are the criteria for the list? as you designed them, what, six years ago now? Thanks, Owen. Um, well, the list uh, is uh, a, as I like to uh, say, a uh, snapshot of the moment and a forecast of the future. Um, it essentially looks at the next three years um, and tries to identify the athletes that will represent the best uh, value uh, and give the maximum return to brands that might be looking to uh, move into athlete sponsorship. So who is going to, um, you know, if you're a brand, uh, which athlete over the next three years is going to give you the best bang for your buck? And... Um, assuming you haven't changed the criteria from uh, the uh, previous editions that I was more involved with. Uh, amongst those criteria are things like um, age, of course, nationality, obviously the sports that each athlete plays and, and how uh, popular or otherwise that is and in what parts of the world. Uh, things like willingness to be marketed. Uh, there are probably certain athletes that we can all name that um, uh, simply don't want to have any sort of obvious association with brands or aren't very good, frankly, at um, working with brands and activating and, and, and being involved in, in campaigns and commercials and perhaps aren't naturals and don't feel comfortable doing that sort of thing. Um, and there are all sorts of other uh, criteria as well that uh, you guys on the Sports Pro team have, uh, have examined uh, and you've come up with, with 50 uh, interesting names. It's an intriguing list. I disagree with some of it, but uh, it's not bad. Thanks, David. That was that was masterfully done. Um, are we going to start at the bottom or are we going to start at the top? It's your list. Let's start from the bottom. Let's work our way up. We're going to work our way up? I think so. I'm going to overrule. I'm going to say let's start at the top. <laughs> <laughs> top of the list. Jeannie Bouchard. No. <laughs> top of the list this year, I think to absolutely nobody's surprise, and this has been the reaction... Uh, from industry folk on Twitter and beyond. Who is it, Henry? Steph Curry. Steph Curry, NBA MVP, 
unanimously this year and pretty much unanimously top of the list. Um, he's just been in the most remarkable run of form. He seems to be a, a personality that people respond to very positively. And he's still, strangely, he's, he's 28 and he's got some big deals with people like Under Armour, but he's still perhaps not reached his potential commercially in the way that somebody like LeBron James would have done it at a similar age. Um, Henry, do you want to go into maybe some more detail about what it is that, that makes Steph Curry so special? Yeah, I mean, we've had the pleasure of sort of indirectly working with them because of the work we do with the NBA, promoting them um, uh, in the EMEA region, which we have done for many years. And he really has, you know, been a phenomenon for a little while now that has just exploded interest internationally, and not just in the uh, in the NBA, not just in the US, but but internationally. And I think he's really transcended his sports, you know. And he, he's done that, obviously, from his style of play on, on the court. He, he's... You know, he's been a, he's been a game changer quite literally in the the way the way that he plays and and his consistent performance of you know obviously shooting you know three points and and I just because he's I mean he's still a tall guy but because he's relatively speaking a small guy you know he just looks different from players so he kind of he just stands out and, and he becomes must must what you know must watch from a, from a sporting point of view off the court again he's a kind of he's typical of a New breed, a new era of, of sports fans in this sort of social media, sports stars in the social media age. You know where he's very transparent. That you know he's he, he has a, he's a family guy. His wife is a is a social media sensation with her cooking on Instagram. You know, like many modern day dads, he takes his kids to work. You know, they're at press conferences. He's just you know a very likable character off the court as well. And and I think the kind of kind of combination of those things has has made that he's kind of exploded onto the scene. Backed lastly, I think by some commercial partners. You know, obviously Under Armour. You know, have, 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 you know managed whether through luck or for good judgment. You know, we'll dig into that. But have you know have associated themselves with him right at just at the right time, and then have kind of leveraged him very cleverly. You know, with some marketing just to kind of help to, to build that momentum, including. You know, doing really clever kind of three-second pieces of content every time he shoots a, a three-pointer, and just kind of stuff that you know you wouldn't have been able to do ten years ago. So, um, you know, they, all these sort of things come together, and, and then you know, culminates in you know Barack Obama doing you know imitating his celebratory dance in a White House reception. You know, you've got the world's most powerful man kind of aspiring to be him in front of a global audience. So it's all sort of come together um, for him over the past twelve months, and. Um, you know, it's um, you know he's kind of yeah he just he's he's got it all. I think there's a couple of interesting things about uh, Steph Curry and the and him being uh, an NBA athlete in 2016 because w obviously his his talent speaks for itself and and that's fundamental with with anybody who makes it onto this list. You know, first and foremost, you have to be good at what you do. You have to be one of the best. Um, I think with with Curry. A couple of interesting things strike me. One is uh, he is playing in a very, very forward-thinking league yeah. for a very forward-thinking franchise. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, the NBA is very often now at industry conferences, in you know, magazines like Sports Pro. You know, in the industry is seen as a leader in terms of what it does. Uh, you know how it's utilising technology, as Henry mentioned, what it's doing on social media, what it's doing with its digital video, 
And basketball, as, as we have said when we've compiled this list in previous years, is a sport that, that plays very well on this list because it's a sport where individuals, it's a team sport where ind individuals can shine um, and are allowed to demonstrate their, their individualism. Um, but it's also a sport that is very, very media friendly. You know, the, the big moments in a basketball game are very vine friendly. They are, they lend themselves to gifts, all that sort of stuff. And I think, uh, you know, somebody like Curry, it, you know, he has the most fantastic distributors in terms of the NBA sending this content out. And I think one other thing that's, that, that's happening, and I read a very interesting piece on this, um, which I think was in the, the New York Times uh, fairly recently, you might find it on a reading list somewhere, um, is that uh, because he plays for the Golden State Warriors, who are out on the West Coast, a lot of their games start very late in the evening, even on the West Coast. So what you're getting is people watching him live, people watching the team live, and they've been on this fabulous run, and who knows where that will, that will end, whether that will be successful or not. But it's been a fabulous uh, you know, team run that has, has captivated America. But what you're also getting is people, even on the East Coast of America, who aren't able to stay up on a work night to watch these games live. And so the East Coast of America, to a certain extent, is waking up to this, this avalanche of content, Steph Curry content, Vines, his, his, you know, his latest, greatest shot, his buzzer beaters, um, you know, in any form of media that they can imagine. And I think that's part of what has made him a national phenomenon, before we even get into what Henry was talking about and the, uh, and the sort of global appeal that, that he has and the NBA has. I think Henry touched on something really interesting, which is that his height is this thing that it's, it's kind of emblematic of him as much more of an everyman NBA player than we've, that we've had on this list or seen before. Mm. The likes of LeBron. And every man, sorry, I feel like I need to interrupt at this point. And every man who's taller than everyone sitting around this table I think sure but but a kind of this kind of he seems like a normal bloke he's got this accessible I mean just look at his friendly face on the picture we've got he's just he's just seems like a really sort of down to earth nice guy and it's not that LeBron and the like don't seem nice but they have this kind of otherworldly quality about them and I think I think Steph Curry just seems like you could have a pint with him and it wouldn't be weird you'd be looking up to him but it wouldn't be weird Take us behind the scenes, Adam and Owen. I mean, you were in the meetings when you, you, you put this list together. I mean, was it an absolute, to use a, a terrible pun, slam dunk? Or were there other legitimate contenders for this, this uh, coveted crown? Slam dunk not being that appropriate a yes. term for <laughs> Steph Curry. True, true. Actually, it, it's interesting. Outside that room, I would say it was pretty much unanimous from very, very early on this year. Every conversation we've had with people um, about the list has, has said, well, Steph Curry's got to be number one, hasn't he? Since we started compiling it, I think I, I spoke to Henry a few weeks ago, um, and the direct question was, is it Steph Curry? Um, I think that's been the case. But, you know, arguments were made for others. I think everybody is, is very happy with him at, at number one, but arguments were made for Jordan Spieth, well, this is a good point to take us a bit further down the list because I was going to mention that I had a... There was a top three, and I think, for me, there was a top three that I would have thought any one of those would have been a um, perfectly justifiable winner of the list, and that was that was Spieth, Pogba, and, and Curry, obviously, um, which is interesting that we've ended up with Coley at number three and, not, mm. and Spieth not in that top three. Um, so I'd say it was... <sighs> As close to a unanimous decision as possible, but 
there was certainly cases presented for other people. Yeah. Um, let's let's go back a bit further then in the list. Should we, should we do as Adam suggested before and and revert to the beginning? Fifty to forty. Any names that stand out for anybody in that bracket? Uh, Nick Kyrgios, uh, number 47, stands out to me because he's he's very much a Marmite uh, character, I think. Um, so what's the thinking there? Is it that he's the kind of guy that a slightly more edgy, to use a, a sort of 90s phrase, brand might uh, <laughs> think, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give him a go? He's radical. <laughs> um, I think... The argument for Nick Kyrgios is that, um, for one thing, he's beaten some of the best, which not everybody in that emerging group of, uh, of men's tennis players has done. Um, the other one is that he's just that bit different. And when you're still living in an era where the best two tennis players are... Well, the best tennis player by a very long way is Novak Djokovic, and then the best three after him consistently are still Andy Murray, Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal... Um, he's just one of the personalities who's broken through. He hasn't always done that by being the guy everyone likes. He's sometimes done that by being the guy who pretty much no one likes. But he is a spectacularly talented player. He's very entertaining to watch when he's in full flow. Um, and he's someone who people are going to remember. I think that's uh, that's the argument. And it's the, the kind of argument you can make a lot more easier, f- f- or a lot more easily, sorry, for a guy at 47 in the list than for somebody in the top 10. I mean, just a couple of points I'd like to raise is I think it's interesting that it's Deli Alley's been chosen over Harry Kane. Mm-hmm. You know, and actually, you know, if you look at the the Beats campaign for the Euros this year, you know, Deli Alley does do some work at Beats, but it's Harry Kane who's going to be front of centre. And a completely different point, I just noticed in this, this we've got the t- only two extreme sports representatives on the whole list. They both mm-hmm. kind of creep into uh, 44 and, and 41. Um, and, you know, Gabriel Medina, the surfer at 41, for example. And, you know, I think it'd be interesting moving forwards whether you know there should be more extreme sports um, athletes on this list or not, considering mm-hmm. the the young demographic they reach and the and again the, the potential for the more and more brands are engaging with them and and um, and just one other point is is that is that the, uh, there hasn't been an uh, esports uh, star on this list I don't think ever and and I think that may be something to look at moving forward. So that's just um, just an aside. But I thought I thought I was expecting maybe there to be one or mm-hmm. two of those guys creeping in at the, at the sort of at the tail end of the list but that, that hasn't happened yet but it'll be interesting to see if that happens next year yeah um, I'll pick up on a couple of those points the the esports guy the, the official editorial line at Sports Pro <laughs> just at this moment <laughs> is that people. esports is a sports industry story but it is not yet a sports story okay. which kind of excludes yeah. people from the 50 most marketable list um, the action sports is a very interesting one and certainly uh, I think Gabriel Medina has been higher in the list before. Um, Niger Houston could certainly go higher. What would be very interesting is were either of those two sports to become Olympic sports for 2020 and the kind of greater mainstream uh, break that that would give them, uh, what that would do to the profiles of guys like that. Anyway, let's let's move a little bit higher up the list. We'll go 40 to... 31, let's say. There's a couple. There's <laughs> just the two of the biggest stars in world sports to talk about, and there are the Cristiano Ronaldo and Usain Bolt, arguably with Rory McIlroy not far behind. But um, clearly, they're a bit lower. I mean, you know, I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo is, you know, the biggest star on sports star on social media. He has over almost 250 million social media 
connections now, but obviously I assume he's down the list because he's reaching the end of his career and you're looking to the future. And I guess coming back to the value proposition, then similarly with Usain Bolt, again, he's obviously going to, this is going to be a phenomenal year for him in Brazil and obviously going into his potential retirement from track and field at the London World Athletics Championships next year. But obviously, you know, both of those guys would come at a, at a huge expense. But and my final point as well is you've also got Jason Day in there who's kind of alongside Rory McIlroy. I, I just think Jason and Rory, I, I, I don't think they should be so far down the list from Jordan Spieth personally. I actually think they're kind of almost, you know, equally marketable to Jordan. I know maybe you could say because of, because of his, the fact he's in the US that, you know, maybe he's going to attract more deals from brands because of that. But I think... I think I've got Jason, Rory, and Jordan. They're kind of, you know, they're kind of neck and neck in my view. I think that um, Henry's absolutely right. If you look at the criteria that we have written down, there isn't much between them. But there's a kind of a, an extra criteria on there, which is this indefinable marketability quality, yeah. which you can't really put in, into words. But you feel that Speed has it in spades more than the other two. I think he's quite boring, Jordan. I prefer a Northern Irishman with a bit of something about him. Maybe worth bearing in mind. Very subjective, isn't it? Worth bearing in mind, particularly in the discussion on McElroy, that um, he was number two, I think, in this list, either two or three Three years years ago. ago. Yeah, he was seventeenth last year, so he's kind of he's dropping back a bit, which you know, which is understandable because he just hasn't quite managed to live up to the potential. So, Mm. and it comes back to it. You know, you need to be able to do it. You know, on the field of play, on the golf course. You know, to 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 cut it. Although, you know, the fact that Danny Willits doesn't even make it on the list shows you it's not just about that either, poor bloke. You know. Yeah. And 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 you know, one other thing to bear in mind, I guess, is uh, and it's particularly apt in McElroy's case is is almost sort of free inventory that they've got. You know, the amount of deals that an athlete like him can can take on. I mean, he's he's sort of head to foot. Uh, a Nike athlete, you know, he's got he's got plenty of other deals that that require his time. So actually, there's not a lot of space for brands to to move in, which I guess is another another factor, um, or it certainly has come up in previous years' discussions in terms of him tumbling down the list a bit. Let's pick up on another couple of stories uh, in that ten before we move on. Two winter sports athletes, Sara Takanashi and, and Lee Sanghua, um, ahead of the Pyeongchang 2018 games. And also at number 30, we've got Alex Teixeira, who is a Brazilian player, but he is a Chinese story, Adam Nelson. Yeah, so this is the one that we probably had the biggest debate about, or one of the biggest debates in uh, putting this list together. Um, Because I think if he manages to play really well and the CSL uh, does its social media bits correctly and gets his face out there, gets his skills out there, gets what he's doing on the pitch out there, it could be a good pick, um, but I think what we're going to see is that over the summer and uh, again next January, the CSL will spend a load more money on much more high-profile players, um, and that was where the debate was um, whether he's just going to become overshadowed. Um, if they can, if both the, the league and him can take full advantage of where he is in the kind of peak of his career, age 26, um, in uh, a hugely visible league or increasingly visible league, then he could be. Um, a really good, really good choice for, for brands who are looking to access that Chinese market um, through a, a global star. Um, yeah, yeah. Right, moving into that top thirty. Anything that jumps out at anybody? Yes, I um, think that, and you won't be surprised to hear this. Uh, motorsport is woefully underrepresented <laughs> on this list. Um, yeah. I can understand. Um, 
Lewis Hamilton being uh, on the list. He's uh, number 24 this year. He was fifth last year. The year before, he was uh, number one. And clearly that's about... Um, you know his, his his commercial space he has available, as we talked about, and value for money uh, as much as anything else. Um, and clearly, he's Formula One's uh, biggest global star by some distance. To, to longevity, I mean, at the moment in Formula One, you have this great, you know, really exciting group of young drivers who are probably in sort of midfield and lower ranking cars, mm. and it's and it, obviously it's about the car. And you have this group of very established. Uh, Stars, your Fernando Alonso's, your, your Kimi Raikkonen's, even though in terms of willingness to be marketed, he would never appear on a list like this. Mm-hmm. Jensen Button, um, you know, even getting to to Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel, who for the best part of a decade now yeah. have been have been, you know, there's, there's very low turnover mm-hmm. in Formula One in terms of those those plum seats. It will happen in the next two three years, but it's probably more than almost any other sport. It's a case of being right place, right time. I so think it's a consequence. I think it's a consequence, though, of Formula One and teams not doing as much as say other sports, like we're talking about the NBA, uh, digitally and social media and the way that they distribute their content. You made that point that you know, obviously, you know, our number one guy, Steph Curry, is part of the Golden State Warriors in the NBA. He has an amazing platform, and I'm sorry, but I think Formula One needs to be in a building these stars, young stars, through social media, and the, the, the organization and the teams can be doing a lot more for it. They can't yeah. just be relying on broadcast television to do that. I think between the two of you, you've probably hit on the two reasons why there aren't any other Formula One drivers in the list. Um, two things happened for Max Verstappen in the days, literally days after we, we put the cap on this. One was that he moved from Toro Rosso to Red Bull, so he was suddenly in a car that could win Grand Prix, and he immediately did. Um, and the other was that he hadn't yet won that race. I mean, there's other guys on the grid. Daniel Ricciardo, I've, I've always thought, is a, is a pretty good shout. But has he been in a car that could win a world championship, and will he cut through if he's not? I, I think more than anything else, you also have to consider with Verstappen and Daniel Ricciardo that um, they are products of Red Bull's Young Driver Programme, which is, a, you know, they, they've made a fantastic investment in lower motorsport formula, you know, investment that perhaps other people should have made, as, as Henry was alluding to. Um, but it does mean that they are almost exclusively commercially tied to mm. Red Bull, the Red Bull machine. So there's limited scope for them to go out and do their own deals, to uh, to be marketed in ways other than the, the Red Bull machine dictates. So that's perhaps a reason why... And, and we've, we've had, again, that discussion in the past about Sebastian Vettel mm. when he was at Red Bull and, and winning everything. Um, and I know he has appeared on this this list um, in the past, but yeah, I think um, you probably should have still had a young young Formula One driver on there. I'm not I'm not absolutely <laughs> sure who. Yeah, well, that's, that's an issue. Right? Anyway, any other any other names just, in that first two? That I wanted to mention. Uh, not much to say on them really, but at mm. 25 and 26, um, we have two new entries from uh, new new countries that haven't featured in the list before, which I just think is an interesting point about increasing sort of uh, global spectrum of sport, how he's yeah. taking in someone from Gabon is, is a very interesting entrant, really. Um, and he's... Uh, Aubameyang is looking fairly likely to make a big move to one of the European giants this summer, which would be, you know, incredible for someone from, from a nation that hasn't traditionally supplied these. So I just thought it was interesting to pick up on the Slovakian and the Gabonese that we have in the list. Mm. OK. Good point. Right, I think we'll take a, a quick break and then we will uh, 
<laughs> well, if you're, if you're buying, Henry. <laughs> we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back with the top 20. Listeners, not finding this podcast too boring? Then why not check out the Sports Pro website, where fresh sports industry news, views, features, and interviews are uploaded every single day. Visit sportspromedia.com, download the Sports Pro app, subscribe to the Sports Pro podcast on iTunes, maybe even treat yourself to a monthly Sports Pro magazine subscription. Delve deeper into the sports industry with Sports Pro. Welcome back to this special Most Marketable Athletes edition of the Sports Pro Podcast. We are just about to dip into the top 20. Conor McDavid at 20 is, is the next one in Canadian ice hockey, um, taking on that Gretzky following mantle. And he actually scored a goal in the World Championship final last weekend, so we're feeling quite pleased with ourselves on that one. But um, are there any other names above Conor McDavid who people would like to discuss in that let's let's go 20 to 11 first um i just uh, in this category there's there's um there's three women and i think it's interesting that in the the list overall actually there's there's you know 15 women and um which i think i think looking back on it is a, is a record number uh, mm. so, i mean it's um my maths is correct that's almost 30 percent of the athletes in here um Women, which is you know, which is great, and I think it's representative of the of the growth of women's sport. And um, obviously, there's a, there's a there's a few in the top ten as well, which I'm sure we'll come on to talk about. But I just wanted to you know reference that at this point that um, you know, women's sport both in the UK but internationally is definitely I think kind of on the up. Um, I think maybe it's representative. It's an Olympic year. You've got you know obviously America's you know sort of one of the big hopes for you know Olympic stardom and um, Katie Ledecky. Um, but from a tennis point of view as well. You know, you've got a new female star in tennis. If I can pronounce her name correctly, Gabine Mugodotha. Um, and fabulous. Oh, you know, I just, it's as if I practiced it. Um, and you know, so I, I think you know, I think it's it's an interesting time for women's sport more broadly. And so, you know, and I think it's good for the industry as a whole that there's there's greater representation of women in the sort of top twenty of these lists. Of course, uh, uh, Jeannie Bouchard was number one last year, um, and her form plummeted almost immediately <laughs> yeah. afterwards. Um, but she still retains a place on this list, and it's very, um, you know, the women's tennis situation is quite interesting in that I'm sure six years ago, and I think Serena Williams would have been on at least the first of the lists um, that we did, possibly the first couple, um, I'm sure we were having a conversation then uh, saying, well, you know, in two or three years there'll be a new queen of women's tennis, and here Serena still is. Yeah, that hasn't happened. No, no. and it's no. and it's and what's fascinating, I think, about women's tennis is the fact that that a lot of the Grand Slams have been uh, shared around. There's been no, apart from Serena, there's been no, uh, well, not even a single rival for her, and there's been no sort of new dominant star through injury, through loss of form. Uh, you know, you've you, you know you can name probably you could probably name fifteen or twenty players who during the period when Serena has been has been dominant and, and winning and, and at the top of the top of the game, uh, who have sort of come and gone almost. And, and I think that's quite an interest. I mean, it's it's I think it's a fun position for the WTA in a way because 
there's lots of good characters in there. Magurutha is obviously one of them. Bouchard is still one of them. You've got the slightly older players, more established players, if you like, like Azarenka, who has had a good good return to form. Although I think she she pulled out um, injured. Um, Sanya Mirza is in the list at, uh, in the 40s as well um, as part of a double act with Martina Hingis. Yes, yeah, and I think you know ultimately it just goes to show that sport is very unpredictable. I mean, who would have thought the last two women's uh, Grand Slam champions would have been Flavia Panetta and Angelique Kerber? I mean, it's uh, it's the it's the beauty of sport, really. But I think I think in terms of uh, Muguruza being uh, in the list as high as number fourteen, I think that's a pretty safe bet. But maybe let's talk again in a year's time. Yeah, I think that, that there's two two things with Williams and, and with the WTA. I mean, we haven't mentioned, of course, that Maria Sharapova is is currently absent and was, has very much been the the number two star in, in women's tennis for a very long time, um, particularly on the commercial side. Um, but Williams does two things. One is that she is indomitable on the court. The other is that she really sets a standard when it comes to managing your own commercial profile, marketing yourself, kind of being a being a real media force, um, which is, is quite hard for, for others to live up to. Um, yeah, and I think, again, it comes back to longevity as well. I mean, just looking at um, uh, Mark Marquez, the MotoGP uh, former world champion, um, actually um, not currently the world champion, but, you know, I mean, who would have thought that six years ago Valentino Rossi would not not only still be riding competitively but, but challenging for world championships? And, you know, his, his, his longevity is absolutely extraordinary in the same way as Serena Williams is. Um, and... I think that makes it very, very difficult. You know, it, it's great for somebody like Marquez to be, you know, and Jorge Lorenzo as well in MotoGP to be the guys who they will always have that. They'll be the, they were the guys who sort of knocked Rossi off his perch. But these, this old guard, then they're, they're not done yet. And I think in women's tennis, we've probably gone past the stage where there was, there's a single person who will knock Serena off her perch. She will, she will retire. She will cut her schedule. She will not be as successful in Grand Slams um, and you know I think you're going to have uh, you know five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten players all all competing for these these Grand Slams which I say again is, is uh, you know it's it's a great position to be in it's very different from having a dominant single athlete and it's a different narrative and, and that affects how the WTA markets itself but it's you know they've got some fantastic characters uh, on their tour and I think it's also in this category, sort of 20 down to number 10, you've got the two new kind of young stars of the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got the equivalent, the NFL's equivalent of Steph Curry, I guess, in Odell Beckham Jr. He was on the list last year, but he's, he's now number 13. And, you know, I guess it's similar because it's, you know, his style of play and what he's been able to do on the field of play, you know, it's just you know, sort of jaw-dropping catches, you know, which is perfect for short-form social content or little you know, news clips, you know, it's similarly to seeing Steph Curry drain a three-pointer from the halfway line. It's very identical, that. And again, he's, he's not the biggest player. In fact, he's quite small, you know, but he's kind of, and he's playing for a, you know, a, a very high-profile franchise in the US, and he's kind of, okay, they haven't done particularly well, but, you know, the Giants are always going to be big news. And, you know, okay, Cam New- Newton's probably not higher because, you know, they bombed in the Super Bowl, but, you know, he is building up. Had they managed to kind of, he managed him and the, um, 
you know, managed, and then the Panthers managed to kind of convert at the Super Bowl, he probably would have been right up there. But yeah, I think next year it'll be interesting to see yeah. where he ends up. The other dynamic with, with the NFL, and, and it's interesting in, in comparison with the NBA, it's a, it's a lot harder for an NFL player on the field to stand out in the way that an NBA player does because they, they're under all the, the helmets and the, yeah. the pads and everything they're else. They're under armour, Owen. They're under armour. Yeah. That's a good brand name. Um, <laughs> the other, the other factor, though, of course, is that the NFL is is a a big rampaging brand that's kind of built on on its own terms. It's, it is the NFL, a little bit like uh, UFC, which we might talk about. In, mm. in just well, a I, was, I was just going to mention UFC when Henry mentions uh, sort of uh, a sport made for short form video, which is is uh, I believe how younger people like to view their content these days. Um, uh, I suspect, had this list been compiled six months ago, Conor McGregor would have been well inside the top ten, and, yeah. and maybe, maybe, who knows where. But um, circumstances have changed somewhat. So, I mean, again, I mean, just just take us take us uh, into the meeting room. I mean, what were the the sort of pros and cons of, of having Conor McGregor? He should still be in the top ten, in my opinion. Well, he almost is. <laughs> um, yeah, the, 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 uh, uh, Tom Lloyd, our digital editor, was a big uh, backer of um, McGregor. Um, our, our resident young person. Resident young person, indeed, was a yeah. was a, a big um, advocate for McGregor in the list, and and I, I think my objection was just it's completely unpredictable. In a year, he may not be in UFC. He may not be fighting. He may have just given up and uh, be running a small office somewhere in Dublin. Um, <laughs> you just never know what what is going to come from him, and that's that's kind of a positive for the list, but it's also to his deficit because you know yeah. he, he may not. He may not be around. In yeah, definitely the interesting years. thing I with. Think he will be there well, I, 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 I think, think he will be, but I there's think no. He's the master of promotion, personally. I, I, you know, I just think he's, I mean, he's been a sensation for a few years. He's not come from nowhere. This is built. So I think it's a bit odd. He's a new entry anyway, actually, because I think he should have been on the list before. I think that was an oversight in previous years. Again, close last year. I think he was he was mentioned in dispatches. Yeah, fifty one. I think wasn't he? Was he? Fifty one. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, he's just you know he is. I mean, two things about him. I think one is his Irishness. He really shows you how you can kind of market yourself off a nationality you know certain nationalities I mean obviously you know shortbread do it with Scottishness and Conor McGregor does it with you know <laughs> Irishness you know and, and I think that plays out very well in the US but sort of internationally doesn't it and it's sort of like it's a real part of his character um, but also secondly you know he's he he understands you know he really understands the power of people and giving opinion and social media and he's you know he's he says a lot of things that are shareable you know and you know he's he's you know he's not much smarter than a 15 second soundbite but you know that doesn't really matter he's like he, what he says gets shared a lot. so i think it's he's just sort of he he plays that game and again he's got a you know Dana White and the you know the co at the UFC they understand this so you know behind him he's got a machine that is absolutely helping him you know to him to give give him a platform to to build him into the star that he is and all the while building the value of the UFC brand as well so um, I, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next 12 months with him as well. Yeah, I think what's interesting with, with McGregor, when you compare him in particular to the, the other UFC uh, athlete on this list, and we also have a, an MMA athlete from the One Championship in, in Asia. Um, but what's interesting in the comparison between Rousey and McGregor is that that feeling that Ronda Rousey has always been promoted as a UFC star in waiting and has subsequently become one and is has now lost her title which is why she's possibly slipped down a bit um, whereas McGregor is is defined almost in opposition to the UFC and how much that's his creation and how much that's theirs is 
is open to speculation, but but that's definitely seems to be how uh, how it pans out as far as he goes. Shall we go into the top ten? Yes, please. Yes. Right. Any any? Let's go. Let's stay outside the top five just for now. Any that um, we're really we're really really building the suspense for this. We've already told. <laughs> you've already opened the presents. <laughs> so you've got. Um, Two Olympians, I think, very correctly in the top ten. Uh, Michaela Schifrin is an outstanding uh, skier, first and foremost. And um, as I have had a tendency to say uh, when discussing this list in previous years, um, she will very much be one of NBC's face of the games, uh, faces of the games uh, when uh, PyeongChang 2018 comes around. And um, she will be heavily promoted. Doubtless, she will be a huge part of their their promotional effort, um, and that gives her a platform that she really should be uh, maximising, and her people should be maximising. And uh, same uh, situation. Uh, thinking about Rio 2016. Uh, for Missy Franklin, who drops down a little bit uh, from last year. She was number four last year. She's number nine uh, this year. But um, she has the considerable advantage as far as, as appearing on this list is concerned of having only fairly recently turned professional. So, you know, so is finally in a position four years on after her fantastic success in London to uh, be able to... Um, uh, you know, work with brands to to uh, further her uh, uh, further her profile and um, presumably add to her bank balance. Yeah, and interestingly, Katie Ledecky, who is at fifteen, is in a similar position to where Missy Franklin was not that long ago, where she was this marketable college athlete who was not allowed to sign professional terms with anybody. Um, Michaela Schiffer, and the other interesting thing that we do overlook in this country where we don't get very much snow is that winter sports is a really big deal in some places and I think that um, you know we, we tend to overlook um, stars in that particular market um, on occasion um, Lydia Ko at 7 now we were talking about the WTA mm. um, the LPGA have done a deal or a, have entered into a collaboration quite recently with with their counterparts at the PGA Tour, where they're going to kind of try and coordinate marketing a little bit more closely and, and really grow golf as a game for everybody rather than dividing it into um, into women's and men's. And I think that puts Lydia Ko in a, in a very interesting position. I uh, think it's going to be very interesting to see in the long term what um, golf's Olympic status does to the game in terms of its popularity, in terms of developing talent from new markets. Lydia Ko is the highest ranked um, woman on this list, and you know, and she's potentially a future number one, isn't she? I mean, I think she's got the potential to become kind of the, the, the you know, you're, you're saying she's the most marketable female star in world sport through this list, and and I think, I mean, it's she's only 19, isn't she? You know, she is. She's. I mean, this can't really be stressed enough. She is an absolutely outstanding sports person. I mean, you're talking about a world number yeah. one at 19. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also, uh, the other point is, is on this 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 list, this 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 group is Neymar at number eight. You know, you know, it's kind of interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about the other group. There's, there's one footballer further up the list than him, but um, and it's, it's obviously Messi isn't in the list at all, is he? Mm. 
I know, I guess it's... Messi's in the 27. Sorry, I mean, yeah, but... Um, um, but you know, so you chosen to go Neymar in the, in the top 10, I guess, because of his age and because there's a potential for him still to become bigger than he is, even mm-hmm. though he, you know, he's one of the you know, three most followed people on social media for, of any sportsman and, you know, arguably should be a bit higher actually than age, shouldn't he? Well, he has been before. Obviously, he was number one on this list. Back the only when double he was winner. The he's only, yeah. He's twice already. Yeah. Um, back when he was Neymar who to a lot, of the, uh, <laughs> a lot of the international Sorry. media. But he's, I think uh, we described him as, as still being kind of the surest bet in, in professional football. Um, the, the big difference between him and, and the other person who we will discuss in, in just a sec um, is that Neymar has done a lot of deals and... Paul Pogba, who is in the, the top five, has done one with Adidas earlier this year. That was his first commercial deal a few years into uh, an elite professional football career. Mm. Um, and th- there's a hell of a lot still to do with, with Paul Pogba, considering the profile he already has. So I, I would imagine the theory with Pogba goes that, um, as well as obviously having Euro 2016 just a matter of days away, now, which is a home tournament, and, and he has all the potential to light that up. Clearly, you've got a World Cup as well in a couple of years' time in Russia, where the French team should be competitive and, and amongst the, the the leading contenders. Um, he also has one mega money transfer in him, whether yeah. that's this summer, next summer. Uh, he's already playing for a, for a big club, um, you know, in Juventus, but. You would imagine that at some point he's either going to go to probably Spain, England, or Bayern Munich, um, and or Paris, or Paris, and yes, or China, or China, <laughs> yes. Uh, so anyway, his options are open. Um, but uh, at that point, you know, we will we will probably see uh, him do him strike more deals. But you know it. It rests on him sort of uh, following through on all the, the tremendous potential that he's showing, I guess. I, I just think there's too many probably's in there for him to be number two. You know, I think, I think yeah, he's, there's no doubt about it, he should be on the list and he should be sort of right up there. But I don't know, I think, you know, I, I, I think he's a top ten candidate. But to be number two, I think he ranks a bit high. And I think the other point about it is that if you're going to put him in particularly such a high position and not to, to overlook Anthony Martial altogether... You know, who's got again similar potential to you know to be a, you know to really announce himself in the world stage of football and the Euros. You know, he's you know you know with the you know United this season had the mate. He's been the breakthrough star of the Premier League this season. You know, and it's just you know naturally again it's a goal scorer rather than a midfielder. It just gives you that advantage from a marketing point of view. It's going to be so much focus around him, and he's he's already become a cult hero for Man United fans. He's been the sort of one shining light they've had this season. So I think you're going to you know if Anthony Marshall has a big Euros, I think you know he's going to be a huge star in world football. And he's again he's only 19. So I think that's one of the things that marks Pogba out is that he is this very uh, individual, marketable athlete, but who plays in a slightly different position to what we're used to. He's not. He's not the Ronaldo, Messi, Neymar up-front player scoring bags of goals. He has something a little bit different about him, which makes him stand out in the market in a way that Martial I does. I, I, think he's I agree di- that Martial should have yeah. been on this. And Pogba is, distinct, <laughs> Pogba is distinctive. He looks, you know, and I think that's so important in, the, in, this, in this space. And he's clearly got that personality and a huge following. So, and, and I think you're right. If, one of, if Real Madrid or one of the top Premier League clubs buys him, then I think it moves him on to the next, mm. to the next level. But... Um, 
But I think the other person that had the intention of his top five that I wanted to talk about was Anthony Joshua, you know. Um, and he's had an amazing, you know, 12 months, and um, he's the only Brit right up there. And, and I think his, well, the first point I'd like to make is, you know, he's a kind of, again, the, you know, the kind of star of the heavyweight division, you know, which has really put boxing back on the map. It's incredibly exciting for the sport of boxing, what's happening in, in the heavyweight division. And, and he's a real breath of fresh air because he's got a great, great personal story to doubt, to tell. He's a real, real ambassador of the sport. He's a kind of a bit like a, a sort of a good Frank Bruno, you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, and, uh, and I think, you know, he's different from Bruno in that sense. That he's not, you know, quite as extrovert in his personality, but he's just a really likable guy. He's, you know, he's doing clever. He's doing the kind of Tom Cruise tactic at the premieres where he's signing autographs for about three hours after the fight. And, and he's got, you know, you know, the brilliant Eddie Hearn behind him, you know, and that kind of machine. So they'll work the angles phenomenally well. And I, I, th- I think it's, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens to Joshua. But, you know, having said, he's still got a pretty small social, social media following, as has mm. Jordan Spieth as number four. So I think he's got great potential. But it just, you know, I mean, it, it kind of his total social following is less than three million people. So it kind of, as well as it's interesting, it shows you he's still got a lot of growth to kind of build mm. up that following. I think people, particularly in Britain, love big fights, but we shouldn't overlook that often these big fights are behind uh, not only a paywall, but a pay-per-view wall, Mm. if that makes sense. Um, But I did see uh, just today, actually, that uh, Anthony Joshua has been named as one of the BBC pundits for boxing at Rio 2016, which I think is a very shrewd move by his uh, management to uh, get him in front of a very big audience, and uh, presumably he'll be able to show some of his his personality. He's an amazing athlete as well, isn't he? He's a huge guy, isn't he? He looks an amazing kind of physical specimen, and I think that really kind of sets him apart. And I think, I think if he can kick on, he, I think he's a potential number one candidate you know, next year or the year after, depending on how things work out. Yeah. For, for many of the reasons that Henry alluded to, I think everybody could look at that and say, is he a touch high? But still, but yeah. still there is something about him. Um, do we want to talk about the one other candidate in the top five that we have not discussed yet? Vera Coley. Mm. Well, I think we should do, because again, <laughs> going back to the point, we, we often sort of don't give enough... Uh, focus on uh, snow sports or you know um, or action sports or whatever I think you, you can't underestimate how huge this guy you know on the subcontinent and in you know one of the world's most you know the biggest and most thriving economies and you know he is a, he's absolutely um, you know a totemic figure for Indian cricket and not just for India as a whole isn't he so um, he was on the list at number six last year and, and I think he's rightly right up there again this year um, so you know, I, I you know, I, I, yeah, I think he's you know he's he's a he's he's a superstar in India. So quite right that he's on the list of number three, I think. And again, a bit like uh, Steph Curry in the NBA, he has around him that sort of structure of a superbly marketed yeah. uh, format in the Indian Premier League. Um, you know, they they know what they're doing in terms of selling that, whether it's on on television, in the venue. Yeah. on digital and it's become he, kind of gladiatorial hasn't it it's brilliant yeah. and it's, when you see him stride out to the minion you've got you know god knows how many thousand Indians are you know, bang and he's just you know, as a batsman just taking the bowlers to task it, it does make it it's just brilliant to watch isn't it and so he's got that again you know things that Steph Curry when he's got the ball in his hands you just want to watch and I think when Coley goes out to bat you know, you you can't you you're gripped by what's going to happen next, and and um, you know, so that's it's great for the sport. It's great for 
Indian sport generally, and, you know, and fair play to him. Okay, I think uh, we will leave it at that for the list, unless anybody wants to talk about Steph Curry again. <laughs> well, I think we covered him, covered him off pretty yeah. well. Uh, I yeah. feel of Curry. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll be talking to Henry Chappell about how to market an athlete and how to build a campaign around one. In a minute. Sports Pro, the sports industry leader in print, digital, events, and, and podcasts. Hello, it's the third and final part of this special Most Marketable Athletes edition of the Sports Pro podcast. Um, we've been talking about our list and our reflections on it, but let's consider now the actual process of building a marketing campaign around an elite athlete. Um, Henry Chappell, you very recently completed a, a quite extraordinary campaign with one of Britain's most marketable athletes of the last few years, one of Britain's great athletes of of the last five or ten years, Victoria Pendleton. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, we um, working with Betfair, who is, is one of our clients, we uh, put together a campaign to... Um, so based on insight, really. It was, it was based on insight of the fact that a lot of people who bet on... Um, uh, with Betfair at Cheltenham, the, you know, which is the kind of the biggest betting event of the year on the British sporting calendar, you know, were brave enough to place a bet, but the insight was told us that they wouldn't be brave enough to ride at Cheltenham, um, which is kind of considered the, the Olympics of national hunt racing. So that sort of sparked an idea of what if we could see how tough it was to compete at Cheltenham and challenge and do a deal with a, a high-profile athlete from another sport to participate in, in the Cheltenham Festival. And um, there was the opportunity, because there is an, a high-profile amateurs race on Gold Cup Day, the final day of the Cheltenham Festival, the Fox Hunters Chase, and... You, know, you need to qualify for it, but it, it is achievable. And um, so then it was, you know, is there somebody who you know could be a good brand ambassador for Betfair, uh, but also has the credibility and, and the capability to actually undertake this challenge? And and you know, Victoria Pendleton was a sort of standout, ca- you know, uh, candidate. She's pretty much the only candidate because obviously she's recently retired from cycling. She is Britain's greatest ever female Olympic athlete. And, um, you know, she's, you know, renowned for her determination and, you know, she's a slightly kind of eccentric, maverick character and, you know, and, and you know, highly competitive nature. And um, so, you know, it was one of those sort of things, the stars aligned and um, Betfair loved the idea. We developed it further and, and, and we took it to her and her, uh, her agent, Chris Evans-Pollard. And, you know, we, and, you know he, he was immediately interested in the concept, um, probably interested in the cash as well. Um, and um, but we sat down with her, you know, and sort t- of talked about it, and you know, fr- from you know, from start to, to finish, and how it could work. And it was interesting because she, um, you know, that what I really wanted to see was that she had some degree of kind of authentic, credible link to horse racing, and she did. You know, her grandmother used to take her to Newmarket races as a child, and she just had this kind of wonderful memory of that. She loved animals and horses generally, and rode a few, uh, as a child at sort of pony club a bit and hadn't pursued it because she, she'd been obviously, you know, cycled from a young age and, at, you know, as all athletes, but particular athletes in individual sports, Olympic sports, her whole life was cycling and hadn't had time for anything else. So it just, you know, so, but she had a connection with the sport and and, and she was up for it. So, um, so you know, um, an agreement was struck and then, you know, in sort of February 2015, we went live w- with the with with the intention to create a lot of interest. A lot of people sort of thought it was just a publicity stunt, but 
you know, we went work together with the you know, British Horse Racing Authority and the Jockey Club who own Cheltenham and people in racing to make it a really credible, authentic campaign. And I think, you know, probably one of the most successful kind of crossovers sport campaigns that has been undertaken anywhere, really, and um, culminated in her... You know, uh, you, you know, it was, a, it, was, it was a roller coaster ride, and there were some highs and lows along the way. And I have to admit, when it came to the day itself, it was, it was incredibly nerve-wracking for all concerned. But you know, it culminated in her finishing a highly credible fifth place in the, in the race, and she perhaps could have even done even better. But she rode the horse, you know, uh, to to instructions, and rode the horse really well. And, and it was it was a real coup. I think clearly for Betfair as a brand, um, I think for Victoria as a as a person, it really kind of you know, showcased the very best of her personality, and you know, and and kind of and continue to keep her kind of profile alive. But also, I think this is why it was where where it was scored a success. It was good for the sport as well, and, and I think for Cheltenham as a whole, it was a really positive story in the end. And I think you know, it generated a huge amount of positive exposure for a sport like horse racing. And I think they should be applauded for for embracing the challenge and what was being undertaken and, and working with us around it and, and, and you know not being so risk averse about it and spotting the potential of it and that includes you know, the trainer Paul Nichols who was heavily involved and it was you know he trained the horse that ran in it and that, that she competed in but like I say Cheltenham and, and the British Horse Racing Authority and Jockey Club all kind of got right behind it identified that this could be incredibly high profile and good for the sport as a whole so it was a, it, you know it came together nicely and we were you know very pleased with, with how, how it ended up mm. I mean, what's interesting is you seem to be kind of treading that that very dangerous ground between branding and the absolute core credibility of a of a sporting event. Yeah, um, I, mean, I think the key thing was is it, from from a brand point of view, associating with Victoria, it was getting them right in the field of play. So it was kind of it, it's, it, it was a piece of native advertising, really. They weren't just slapping a logo on the side of something that happens. They were facilitating something new. From an athlete point of view, I think it shows you if you want to transcend your sport. Bear in mind, obviously, Victoria had recently retired, so she's a former athlete. So I think, and and it's quite interesting in the context of what we've just been talking about, the fifty most marketable athletes, and it's a lot of them. It was based on the potential of the future, but it's interesting how over the you know the past ten years or so, a lot of former athletes have almost gone on to earn more money or be more, more marketable after the end of their career. I mean, this goes back some time, maybe like in Boris Becker or John McEnroe. I probably have earned more, you know, since they finished playing tennis or when they play. But, you know, say David Beckham, you know, his, his, his commercial marketability has just grown further, I think, since he stopped playing. I don't think it's tailed off at all. And, and you know, that's because they can do interesting things. And, well, you know, it doesn't, doesn't mean they have to, have to compete at Cheltenham. But I think they undertake different challenges, whether it be with reality TV shows or new ventures or new propositions and you know it's it's you know it shows you that these guys you've got this you know amazing personalities that people can um, you know uh, intrigue and interest people they, they can have longevity beyond beyond their their cycling career or their core play, their playing career but with someone like Victoria you know it was it was in a perfect platform for her because of the, the nature of the challenge the audaciousness of it but also the bravery involved and you know again the fact that she's a small tough little you know girl who's Kind of with that, you know, she's got a great smile and she kind of could bring it to life so well. I think it was really endearing. But, uh, you know, and, and underneath her, and she, 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 she was very eloquent and articulate about it, which really helped us, you know, to kind of promote and market the challenge. I mean, you, you must, it did stir a bit of debate, as you said, in, yeah. terms of, in terms of whether it was credible, whether it was real, whether it was something that was going to be seen through right to the, uh, the end. I mean, you, presumably going in, you must have 
known that it would stir that kind of debate? I mean, did, to what extent had you game planned for that, if you like, yeah. and, and sort of put yourself in a position where you could you could react to the inevitable scepticism, cynicism that that you know yeah. was around the industry and and, and yeah. you know around you know what was your what was your yeah. approach? Well, we knew it was inherent in it, mm. um, and we knew that actually that was probably a positive. Um, because it was going to generate interest, and the great marketing campaigns, I think, actually ha- have a you know a sort of uh, stir debate. Mm. You know, I think it was all just positive. There's not much more to be said than it. it. Kind of the conversation lasts probably no more than thirty seconds. People say, "Oh, that's good, isn't it?" Whereas the fact that some people could say, "No, it isn't," actually is, is arguably a positive in any form of marketing. Um, I mean, it's interesting. You, it's only a certain type of, of brand from a certain category that probably would have entered into this. You wouldn't have probably seen a bank or a or a building society or a financial services or a insurance company doing something, you know, with that element of degree of risk in it. But for a betting company, it's kind of it was kind of perfect. But Betfair is a very credible betting company, and you know they didn't want to be doing something that was not you know seen to be to be credible and, and not just seen but was credible. So and I think it's the same for Victoria as well. You know, she didn't want to diminish her status as you know one of the Britain's greatest ever female athletes which she is so she didn't want to be seen to be failing because again like all athletes she's very competitive but and I understand if you don't want to understand your brand values by being associated by something that you know that lacks credibility or whatever so that was how we could do this credibly was very important so behind the scenes there was a whole kind of team of experts that she worked with Yogi Breisner the equestrian coach you know one of the world's best through to you know, the, the point-to-point family who supported her so it was and, and with Paul Nichols' support who is the uh, you know, he's kind of the, the leading National Hunt trainer over the past decade. To have him on side and behind it, it meant that, you know, him, this, and it wasn't, it, she wasn't doing this kind of, it wasn't in any way willy-nilly, and she'd fully qualified to compete in the, the race that she did under the rules of the, of the, of the race, and, and all of those experts were very happy and willing, to, and not just happy, they were, they were 100% that she was ready to race in it. And, you know, from our point of view, you know, we communicated that very strongly in advance when the decision was finally made. They, there was a big press conference in London around that, and which generated a lot of interest, but all of them were kind of fully endorsing it. So, and then there was a kind of crisis management plan around that was put in place because in case anything did go wrong, which it could do, because it is a naturally a risky sport. And, yeah. and we don't think that would have happened because of Victoria, but it, it just could, it can happen. And, you know, and actually, interesting. This Cheltenham, there were seven horse fatalities, but and actually, the success of Victoria's sort of campaign kind of meant that that didn't get quite so much airtime as it would have done. So, obviously, that that's that's part of it. Same as in motorsport, isn't it? That kind of crashing is is part of it. And so, so, but I think we we did do a lot of work to ensure that the the negativity around that was minimised. But I think ultimately, the fact that there was, you know, in the build up to it, some people who were critical of it, including kind of legends like John Frankham, ultimately actually put more fuel on the fire of the campaign mm. and I suppose the other thing as well is that any campaign that's built around sport which is unscripted mm. is always going to be part planning and part reactive I mean you had a, a fantastic result which ended with you were explaining this to me before for, I mean um, for the benefit of everybody listening there's a, a feature in the next issue of Sports Pro about this but um, the fact that Victoria finished fifth meant that you could highlight Betfair paying out on fifth place yeah, for I think, I each way. Yeah, I think it's a nice... I mean, exactly. They, they, one of their big promotions for Cheltenham is uh, anyone... The top five could get some each way money back. And they put a lot of money on the Fox Hunters. And I think she was at 20 to 1 or something like each way. So, you know, that was a, sort of the happy end of it. She did officially finish in a place according to the bookies. And, you know, I think it was also quite... Like Nina Carberry won the race. And, you know, so it was... I think it, it was a, sort of the best result all round. And, um, 
you know, and it's great. Her, her love of the sport, it means that she's continuing to ride, probably not going to do the Fox Hunters again at Cheltenham, but she, she might do. But, you know, it, it was a campaign that, you know, that I think, um, you know, was, was ultimately a huge success for, for, for all parties involved. And But it shows you, I think, you have to have the right planning around it. You have to have the right people involved. There's, it has to be collaborative, I think, between sponsor and athlete and between other people involved. That degree of collaboration is really critical element, and I think nowadays particularly with the scrutiny and the social media and thing it has to be authentic credible if you were trying to just do that as a publicity stunt it would have fallen flat on its face and I think those those days are gone really I think I think so to do things like that you they they have to be real okay that's a nice note to finish on um to play us out we're going to have a couple of special guests we've got uh Jeff Austin who is Steph Curry's agent who's going to tell us about working with the world's most marketable athlete um, and we also have the number three on our list, uh, Indian cricketer Virat Kohli, who's been speaking to us too. But for now, um, I'd like to say a thank you and goodbye to Henry Chapel. Thank you very much. To David Kushnan. Bye-bye. And to Adam Nelson. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for listening. You know, even, even when I came uh, in my younger days into the team, I always wanted to get as many runs as possible and, and win games for the team. So I always had that, that sort of, uh, you know, you can say hunger or um, that characteristic inside me um, of wanting to do that. Um, as I said, the whole event and, you know, the enormity of the games that we won against Pakistan, against Australia, um, you know, getting runs in the semis, um, I think it just... It just magnified it a bit because of the importance of the tournament. And, um, you know, it, it happens in every cricketer's life if you get runs at important times. And when the team wants you to do it, when the whole country wants you to do it, if you end up performing, obviously, uh, you know, for me personally, in my head, it gave me a lot of confidence. I did not see a change um, in terms of the team looking at me differently or, you know, guys thinking of me differently. Uh, because as professional cricketers, we understand that for us, it's just a matter of performance and, you know, performing for the team whenever required. I think, um, you know, when all the external factors are put together, say a World Cup, playing at home, as I said, pressure situations, then for the people watching and, and people who are not part of the dressing room, it looks much more magnified uh, than what it is in, in a professional cricketer's head. You know how they say for, for bowlers in test matches, you have to be boring, literally, you know, bowl, bowl that boring length and boring line and, and wait for the other to make a mistake. It's a great example of that in terms of your your fee, uh, your work off the field and, and how you conduct yourself. Mm. I've seen those guys do the same thing over and over again every day of their life just because they knew that that is what is required for them to be at the top of, of international cricket and to contribute to the team's success, uh, you know, every, every time they step out onto the field. It's a matter of trust. I mean, you've got to trust someone to work good for you. And then at the same time, the company has to trust the athlete as well in terms of, you know, uh, believing that the athlete will perform. But at the same time, he will create a, a relationship uh, with those people to actually, you know, have a good working environment as well. So you understand that uh, you do have 10 or um, 10, 11, 12 years of, of your professional cricketing career left. and you want to focus on that 100%, that has to be priority. But as you said, I mean, 
um, you know, how I do it is, is obviously a, a big challenge. Um, you have to actually figure out throughout the year what you're doing, um, you know, from um, the first to the 12th month and, and figure out your dates and, and you have to strike a balance. It can't be, um, it can't be you know, uh, very sudden. Um, it doesn't work at times uh, if, if something comes up very suddenly. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty difficult to strike a balance, but I understand that these are the years where I can, I can you know, I have to strike that balance to make the most of uh, what I'm doing on the field. But at the same time, you know, you want to make a living out of it. You want to have an infrastructure tomorrow that you can work on things um, after you're done with cricket as well. That's why I get involved with business ventures and I'm trying to set up things that I can be involved with um, even when I'm done with my careers. You know, obviously, it's not easy for me to sit down and think of business ideas uh, while I'm playing cricket because it requires a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of study. Um, you need to do quite a bit of research before you can actually get into something, um, you know, to figure out investors and, and uh, people who actually know the business. It's, it's a long process, mm. but something that I'm, I'm keen to learn uh, so that tomorrow if I want to invest in businesses or start some of my own, I actually have an understanding and knowledge of the same. So that's why... Um, I really like it when some some um, business opportunity comes up, but only for the things that I'm involved in and that I'll keenly be involved in even when I'm done, as I mentioned before. But yeah, the management obviously brings those opportunities to me. And then we sit down and figure out whether it's, it's good for us to do it or not. You know, how much is going to grow in, say, about five years, ten years, and then, yeah, we take a collective call. But yeah, uh, the, the stuff is gathered by... Um, my, my management company, which is headed by Bunty, and, and then it comes to me. I think, um, you know, I would, I would like to see cricket become a global sport. Um, I think that's one thing that, that cricket has always lacked, um, is to become a global sport. And particularly because whoever plays cricket, it's a very, uh, it's a very natural choice. Uh, no one's forced into it. It's a sport that if you like from when you're a child, is how you pick it up. Um, otherwise, it's very hard for people to understand the sport, um, you know, in general. So, um, yeah, that's something that I would I would like to see happening in future. Obviously, um, I would I would love to see Test cricket being right up there, um, you know, till the time the sport is played. That's one format that's very dear to all the all the players in the world who play for their respective nations and. And I would, I would like the kids to understand um, how important that particular format is. Mm. And it's, it's the responsibility of the players how they play the particular format, how they play test cricket is what's going to attract kids towards wanting to do that. So I think it's, it's, it's the responsibility of all of us um, as international cricketers, not just from India, mm. um, from all the countries around the world. Um, mm. It's our responsibility to keep test cricket right up there. Um, as we see it, um, so that the kids can pick it up the same way. The sport makes you grow as a, as a person, as a human being as well, uh, which you might have heard from a lot of people, a lot of players. And, you know, I want to, I want to become a better person every day. Uh, that's my aim in life. Um, I want to understand things in a better way, in a rational way, in a practical way. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just and, and make, make a difference in, in people's lives. If I can inspire children to pick up the sport, if I can inspire, um, you know, uh, young boys in India to actually go out and play test cricket and play for the country, um, that'll make me very happy to know that I've, I've done something for the society, I've done something for the sport, and I've made use of, of you know, this time in my life.
uh, obviously it starts with uh, his talent, you know, which is uh, he, he, he's got an amazing hand-eye coordination talent, and but but more so his work ethic and his confidence. I mean, nobody works harder than him. Uh, even amidst this season where he's having, you know, he was first unanimous MVP in history. Uh, he, he routinely stays after a full practice for an extra hour and a half, two hours, you know, working by himself. Uh, he, uh, he's just a relentless worker. And, and uh, not only does he put the time in working, but uh, as the GM of Golden State told me, he's the most efficient worker he's ever seen. Everything he does when he works, he does with a purpose and with a focus. In relation to all the past greats, I mean, he's just doing it differently. Um, uh, his style of play, first of all, the fact that he's not that big um, and is able to dominate, you know, larger, you know, seemingly more athletic players uh, with his ball handling and his shoes, really just with his uh, with his shooting, uh, his skills, I mean, just uh, dominating him with a, a, a skill set that uh, it makes it, I hear all the time that from people and seem to verify that People who are non-NBA people, people who don't watch the NBA, they watch the Warriors because what he's doing is different. Um, um, and he's bringing not just a different set of skills, it's, it's just fascinating to watch, but he's also doing it with a sense of joy. You know, at this point, you know, we're fortunate enough that in, with respect to this market that we can be very, very selective. You know, we have way more stuff that we're looking at then we can accommodate and so um, so basically the brands that he associates with you know it's, it's very important and then just as important as the brand is the creative you know how, how are they going to use him what does the creative look like because the creative has to reflect who he is because his time is precious we're, we're looking at some a lot of deals now where uh, not necessarily the standard you know, uh, TV commercial, but we're looking at getting equity in some startup companies that require less of his time. Uh, we're looking at doing some content deals and and some entertainment deals. So we're looking at a lot of different opportunities that don't require the you know the personal appearance and a and a and a, uh, and a television production day. You know, which is sort of your typical endorsement. So we're trying to get away from that because there's only so many. Production days he can do, and there's also we're we're trying to be conscious of not diluting his brand too much by doing too many uh, high visibility things. So um, you know, and he's obviously making more money uh, on the court and off the court, so he he can he can afford to be more careful with his time, and that's obviously changed a lot in the last 18 months. Yeah, we've had. Some very good players before, but never anyone quite like this. I, I must say, I've never had a represented an athlete who attained these heights, and so it's uh, just we're sort of creating the template as we go. We really believe that the Curry brand with Under Armour can can grow into something that will be a you know a transcend and, and go past his playing years. Really, it'll it'll. It's, uh, it's, a very, it's obviously his most important relationship. From 1st of April, which is when the regular season is winding down, through the end of the playoffs, 
uh, we've told all of his partners that he won't do anything, even sending tweets. You know, uh, you know that's his time to focus on basketball. So he's, uh, and we've also told him that we won't discuss any business with him. So he's got. We've really got a moratorium on any business from April one through the end of the playoffs. So anyone I'm talking to right now about opportunities for him, you know, I'm having conversations and we're maybe diving deeper with some than others, but I'm not discussing any of that with Steph until the playoffs are over. The next priority for me is to sit down with him uh, at the end of the playoffs and spend a day and and just talk about the things that he's interested in. Does he want to, you know, be, produce some content? Does he want to act in a movie? Does he want to be involved in fact? You know, right now, does he want to write a book? He's, he's got so many opportunities to do so many things. He knows what he wants to do, and I'll get pretty clear answers from him. You know, that he likes this, doesn't like that, wants to pursue this. You know, he thinks this is interesting. Um, and uh, he's, he's, he's very, he has a very um, clear vision for himself of the things he likes to do and wants to pursue. I don't know. I, just, I, I would just hope that it means he's got a, a level of trust so that when we sit down and talk and he asks my opinion, he, that he values my opinion and knows that that is best interest at heart. I would hope that that trust would be important. You know, I don't want to speak for him, but I, um, it's, been, it's been a nice uh, journey along this way, that's for sure.